Welcome back, all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone who has ever cried out for God to extinguish your entire species. We are here to deliver you the recommended weekly allowance of your weird dose of X. I'm still Jason, and here with me, as usual, is Ruben. Hey, Jason, it's Ruben. We have had four event-related books this week, and uh, I'll say two of them are at least pretty consequential. Other two, maybe not so much. None of them really knocked my socks off, but we'll have things to talk about. And plus... At the end, there's an extra special bonus mutant appearance outside of the regular books. I'm, I'm going to hold on to that for the end of the podcast, but a little extra bonus. So uh, I had a, a really busy week and weekend. I was up in New Hampshire camping and having enormous quantities of meat and beer. So my prep time was a little reduced from what I usually have. So I'll be leaning on Ruben a little more than usual, especially for those two latter books that at least to me seemed may, maybe maybe not so consequential. He, maybe he can convince me. That I'm really missing out. So, are well, we ready to jump? About a minute each. Okay. Well, maybe not. <laughs> we ready to jump right into the books? I am. Yep. Okay. We're going to start with what I think was the best book of the week: "Death to Mutants" number two by Kieran Gillen, art by I believe it's Gui Villanova. So here on the cover, well, we were expecting this to be very deviant centric, right? Because last time uh, we we saw the mutants were kind of showing up on Krakoa. Hey, we're, we're mutants, you're deviants, we're all the same thing, whatever now. And we see Crow here on the cover, and also Cyclops in a very, very crotch-forward pose there for Cyclops. I don't need to see that much. But so the two of them seem to be fighting, you know, back to back. So we're expecting very mutant-centric or very deviant-centric, and we, we kind of get there, at least we're part of the issue. But when we start off, we are with one of our civilians. Although it's not one of our, like, six official civilians. This, as far as I can tell, this is a brand new character. Have we seen her before? No, and I was looking back to see, you know, is this one of the initial ones that we were shown? But no, I think this is just no, another this is This is Sally. She lives in London and she's chatting online with her new friend. And I don't know where she met this friend. Did you, could you figure out it's supposed to be on Twitter or on some sort of a other, I don't know what it, it seems is. seems like she has a, she's on a forum because she talks about this is a new person that's here that's commenting and they're not sick of her kind of same old same old story about how she was going to create a fanzine for poetry. Right. So she's she likes poetry. She she went to see, it could, could be it could be the, could be one of those channels of the weird science Slack chat that I don't go into. <laughs> yeah, Who knows? I'm not invited to yet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this uh, she's talking to her, her friend. She's talking about poetry, and this other person seems really interested and interesting and has smart reactions, but has never read anything. Never heard of Sylvia Plath. Never heard of T. S. Eliot. You know. I'm not a big poetry guy, but I've, I've heard of those people. Uh, and so she's kind of suspicious, but so far this person seems all right. Uh, so they yeah, keep I chatting. Think she's a little turned off, be- or I guess not turned off, but she's a little suspicious because the person keeps saying, you know, oh, who should I read? And then an hour later, they know everything about. <laughs> right. Kind of strange, but again, fun and nothing too sketchy so far. And this person she's chatting with has, has an interesting uh Screen name as well. Who? What? What does this person call themselves? Memotor. The Memotor. I'm going to say, yeah. Okay. yeah. And then we we turn the page and we see here's the Memotor attacking Krakoa again. Or still, it's it's really unclear to me when these attacks are happening, and that's going to be a consistent theme for the rest of this podcast. But put that aside for now. So it's like she's multitasking. We learn that all the Hex are, are sisters, and while she's killing lots and lots of mutants. She's also having little chats about, you know, scansion and symbolism uh, with this uh, nice lady in London. So that's that's fun. We, we've seen hints that uh, Mimator specifically has had this 
other inner life. But this is the first time we've seen nearly this much of it. So what did you think of this little reveal? Um, it's kind of cute. I mean, it shows a little bit that the hex is bigger than than humanity, right? Like I couldn't be doing this kind of multitasking. I can't even do basic multitasking. Um, so it gives a little bit of a character, right? And the whole idea that it's, um, you know, so into poetry and yet it's kind of this like brutish weapon of war is kind of a interesting uh, characterization. It gives it a little bit more personality than just generic kaiju monster. She, she's more than she seems, and we're told that that the like all the Eternals, uh, Mimator and all the other Hex were created, you know, a million years ago. But they've just been locked up in the uh, the exclusion or what are the armories of Uranos, locked up there the whole time. So they're they're really old, but also incredibly inexperienced with anything. They were built to kill and murder and blow stuff up, but also have this big personality that has never gotten out and gotten to interact. So kind of like a, a a little kid and also a giant tank. Yeah, yeah. And I liked that sort of answer or explanation as to why we've never heard of this character or seen this character. Because that was one of my, my senses. You know, I've, like I told you on the last cast, I've been going back reading old Eternals just to kind of see, you know, how many of these characters are new for this story. Uh, are these Kieran Gillen creations or are they, you know, recharacterized legacy characters? And I I had never heard of the Hex or seen the Hex. And that was kind of weird, right, given the whole they, statement. They seem like a big remote. thing, but it makes sense that they could have been hidden away. But yeah, we've never heard of them, so I was like, that's that's a little odd. But that that helps, right, that this is sort of a weapon created. And once he got kicked into the exclusion for, you know, plotting, like, global <laughs> annihilation, um, these would not be available to use. I, I did sort of wonder, though, um, was it clear, and I guess I'd have to go back and look, was it clear that um, Druid got access to release the Hex because Ernest decided to give him access to the armory? That that part's a little, um, you know, I've just got the question mark in the back of my brain, is that... Yeah, he got he got the keys to the castle at some point, yeah. Druid, uh, Ornos let, let him do that. Another thing is, back in X-Men 13 and in uh, Death to the Mutants number one, there was this whole big thing about the mutants going into into the exclusion, into Eternals territory, and freezing that whatever device it was and cutting off the supply lines, they kept calling it. And what did that have an effect? Because here we see the Hex are still really attacking and pretty uh, pretty effectively. So I'm not sure what's that about. What do you think? I think in the in that issue they mentioned that it was only going to slow them down for a little bit. So maybe it did, and they I guess it all thawed in between when the progenitor called everyone off, and they decided to go back out and attack again. I, I will say with all of these issues, jumping backwards and forward, and kind of you know going into the minutia of these you know I guess higher level scenes in the in the main story, it's starting to get a little confusing to me as far as you know. Does this all line up correctly? And I, 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 there's enough here that I like that where I'm just like, I'm not going to think about it too hard. I'm sure <laughs> that's it that's probably I, I, smart. I'm not going to do that, but that's not, probably smart right? way to go. It might not it, make a lot of sense if you really It does seem confused, and it's even within books only written by Kieran Gillen. Even if I just stick with those, it still doesn't quite work out. If you say, okay, you know, Wolverine, Ben Percy, or something with you know, any other writer, maybe something got lost in, in the Slack chats, and there's their Slack chat somewhere, but... I would think that at least Gillen would have a timeline where he makes makes things work out. But okay, so our next scene again, it's it's filling in some details on a scene we've already seen the outcome from already. Uh, we see Crow uh, having some sort of a chat over I don't know what kind of a you know internet chat with Emma, and this is them setting up for that big reveal where the deviants are going to show up on Krakoa. And you know he's flirting with her a little bit, trying to make a bit of a deal. You know he's being Crow, she's being Emma pretty good 
And then we turn the page. I appreciate the um, characterization of Crow, at least here, where it's like, why would you join us? And he's basically like, look, we're going to get annihilated if we're trying to fight the Celestials or the Eternals on our own. So a friend of my enemy is, or, you know, enemy of my enemy is a friend. Kind of yeah, I, I was glad they fleshed it out too, because here it's more like, well, it's not like he, he thinks it's not like the celestial or the eternals are going to stop after they kill you. So rather than have us pick us off one at a time, it just m- makes sense to all do it together. And so here, as a character, one thing I do find kind of funny slash weird is he has been sort of a heartthrob in the legacy comics, but they keep making him look less attractive. <laughs> Like, he looked like a little goblin in this one, right? But, like, Thena had a thing for him. And then, you know, in the early Kieran Gillen run, um, Cersei seemed to also have an interest in him. I, I don't know what, what is drawing these characters to him, but I guess they like the, the teeth sticking out of the jaw look and the pointy ears. It's, I guess it's all the confidence. They love a bad boy. <laughs> I guess like, that's... I'm not really one to talk, but not, that, that's my guess. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they do show up on Krakoa. And uh, the mutants want a distraction so they can send their heavy hitters off to do that whole, hey, there's a weak spot on the Celestial plan, so they need the Deviants to kind of hold things off. And this was kind of a, a funny little plan the Deviants had, kind of kind of awful at the same time. So Crow has uh, Carcass the Kind, one of our other Deviant friends, pull out this cage. And in this cage is a Deviant, the one who has completely succumbed to true excess deviancy it's got teeth and tentacles and it, it's your, your basic lovecraft kind of monster all sealed up in a in a rocket powered cage sled i guess so uh it's it's like throwing a tennis ball for a dog it seems you know you, you have a, a golden retriever you throw a tennis ball that that thing's gonna go get it and if you throw an excess deviant out in front of one of the hex well they're just gonna go chase it so that seems to be their main plan here which is a little silly a little gross but kind of fun again. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious. Um, I mean, this isn't going to probably be addressed in this comic at all. But when we see the Deviant Horde show up, this is probably just fan service to people like me. Um, you see Carcass, and then um, the Reject is the guy in the white with the long hair. Those were both um, Deviants that Athena uh, actually kind of adopted. And so they left uh, Lemuria and were living with the Eternals for a while. So I'm like, what, what are they doing back here kicking it with? crow and the crew but you know probably just to show us you know hey somebody else read the comics or at least they page <laughs> they also had a little bit of panel time in the gillen run where they're talking about being you know they were like fighting on the street because they're such good gladiators but even though they didn't want to fight each other it was kind of their job so that's that's the last time that's the only time i know them from carcass the kind he's also a bit like um the mimotar in that his gimmick was like he's this hulking brute but he's a uh, you know got a you know, an interest in the arts and the heart of an artist. Yes, he is. He is both martial and an artist. How crazy! And uh, the, the reject was the opposite, right? He was like the beauty boy, but he was actually a bestial and you know, kill everyone kind of thing. Always made me laugh. Yep, love love those archetype type characters. They mix things up. Okay, so now we get back on Krakoa. This is after the battle. I, I guess there's now a break in the action. The hex aren't attacking, so we have some conversation time. I don't know, but uh, Crow and Emma are are having a little chat. And Crow uh, lets on about how he was judged. And we saw that he got the thumbs up. We didn't really know why or how, but he got the thumbs up. So we see him having the progenitor just like appear to him mentally. And that's one of the ways this happens. And in this whole batch of issues, we get a whole different number of ways this happens. Like they couldn't decide. So he just gets kind of a mental thumbs up. And it turns out, I guess at the same time, 
as a group, all the deviants get a collective, I guess individually all thumbs up and a collective thumbs up, whatever it was, they all pass. They're all, they're all fine. Yeah. So what happened, what happened here is, you know, there's the fight where the deviants are trying to hold off the, the attacking hex. And then if you remember in uh, issue number three of the main event, the mutants went off and tried to kill um, the progenitor, but then he prevented them from doing that, right? He just put them in a, I guess, mental image where they showed Reykjavik get destroyed. Yep. Yeah, we'll see that in uh, the next issue we talk about. That's sort of the gap. And then the page turn is, okay, after the failed attack on the progenitor, everyone, I guess, just like licks their wounds and realizes they're going to have to accept judgment and goes away. And then at that point, then the progenitor starts appearing to all these different people, including Crow, like you said, and the deviants. And this is, I guess, or I think um, my impression of this event is going to go way up or way down. I start to get a sense for like, what's the criteria for the judgments here in this? It seems to be something along the lines of, um, are you fulfilling like your, your personal mission statement? And like, I are consider you that. I don't know if that could. I don't know if that's going to hold up for the the rest of the books we talk about. We'll definitely keep that in mind, though. That that's certainly one one leading theory as to what the thumbs up, thumbs down is. The other leading theory is it's just arbitrary. That's actually my my leading theory is that I don't know. He flips a yeah, coin. I'm going to ignore what what happens in the other books, but in the, if the Kieran Gillen stories are consistent and they give us an answer as to like this is the criteria for the judgment. And if it was, if it plays out that this was like an intentional mystery and then they reveal it, then great. This will be a great, great event, right? If it turns out this was all just arbitrary and we get that sense with the other writers, it doesn't seem like he might have told them what the criteria was. Um, that'll be unfortunate. And I definitely don't want this just to be another Opaluna Saturn, Saturnine just kind of, you know, flipping a coin and deciding outcomes. Well, let's hope we get a satisfying conclusion. I'm, I don't know if we will or won't, but I certainly hope so. I, I hope that I'm surprised by how good the explanation is. But it is kind of neat to just, just to stick on the deviants here for a minute, that these deviants have always seen themselves as hated by their own gods, right? They've seen themselves as the lowest of the low, that the celestials are, the celestials are their creators. They know their creator. They've met their creators. There's no mystery the theologians don't have to debate things. It's it's all right there. And they even know that their gods created this whole other class of much stronger, prettier, you know, ones they seem to like better just to beat up on deviants. It's like if we if like if the, the angels existed just to keep us down. And now this god is saying, Hey, all you deviants, you're all right. You get the thumbs up, which is shocking to them and, and shocking to us too. So that is a Again, I don't know if it's going to make sense, but that, as for one scene, that's one of the cooler scenes we've had so far. Yeah. And the deviants at some point in ancient history became the dominant species on Earth. And then the there was a period when the Celestials had left, right? They, they came to Earth. They created deviants, humans, Eternals. I guess humans were already there, so they, they created the Eternals and the, the deviants, and then they left. Then I guess the deviants were so effective, they just overwhelmed most of the world. The second host shows up and like wipes them out. And like eradicates them, like casts Lemuria into the abyss. Right. And, and that's and that's where we saw that one site in Lemuria where they got part of this this god from, I think was was connected to that. Yes. Yeah, so just to have that, they've really got to have whiplash because they were the worst, and then they were beaten down. And then we were kind of told in uh the Avengers tie-in, not tie-in, but the, the Avengers early part of Jason Iron's run, oh, actually, 
the deviants were the most important part. They were here, what the Eternals were only here to make the deviants do what the deviants were supposed to do to breed superheroes in the human population. So their their conception of themselves has really been whipsawed lately. I mean, we, we know it's just retcons, but to them it's the real world and it's it's gotta be really confusing. Yeah. And I can I can make it work, right? I think the idea was look, if you wipe out humanity, like you're not gonna make mutants, right? The deviant humanity breed is not gonna be formed, right? So I could see the celestials coming back and kind of reducing their tweaking, numbers tweaking conditions a little bit yeah yeah but I, and so this is where i start to draw my my sense of like well why are they getting a thumbs up and i think it's got to be this statement about like you know they they knew what they were doing and fulfilling their their goal of like working with other deviants and trying to keep them alive and help them out and that, that's so why they get- you think it's really just this past couple hours that turns them all positive that they were working with the mutants that's it's that also seems to come up sometimes in a lot of the other judgments that it's very much this this uh progenitor has a recency bias right he only seems to be paying attention for the most part i mean maybe not captain america but for other people it's like oh what have you done lately that's good i like it you get the thumbs up really not not caring about all those other past years of your life so that's very strange that so we thought I didn't think about that, but I think it's basically since he was like, "Hey kids, you're pissing me off. I'm gonna start judging you." I think from that moment forward, that was when the clock started ticking. Prove yourself, justify yourself, right? Are you? Oh, are you I true guess so. Your mission statement. Huh? Yeah. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe that's what that uh, statement was about. So we turn to uh, visit Druig and friends a little bit, and Druig has not been judged yet. He's not been visited. He's really nervous about what that's what's going to happen. He's chewing his own fingernails off. We see that the Delphin brothers got the thumbs down and they blame each other. We don't see any more details about that. We see that Oranos is getting, well, he's not getting judged exactly, but the progenitor shows up as if to judge him. And Oranos says, hey, it's too early. It's not time yet. And he kind of yells at the progenitor and the progenitor doesn't say anything, but basically seems to say, oh, okay, you're right, and leaves. So that's another Another version of this judgment is like the null. It's not even the null. Like we saw Craven got no judgment. Yeah. Other people get a deferred judgment. So I need like a fourth column on my stupid spreadsheet. Thumbs up, thumbs down, no judgment, and we'll see you next week or tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I think this point is, Uranus is basically like, look, I have an agenda and it's going to play out. I have not had a chance to act on it yet, but, you know, don't judge me until you see whether or not I can accomplish my goal of annihilating everything. Okay, so we turn to another location. We go to Avengers Mountain, where some other uh, Eternals are doing their thing. We have Cersei and Fastos and Makari uh, and Ajax, I think. They've made this this dais, they call it, or like a podium, which is a weird little bit of kind of Kirby tech almost. comes out of nowhere, but it, it serves its purpose. And they say, hey, if you stand at this dais, you get to talk directly to the new god. It's like a direct line. I, I thought that maybe it's a god, I can hear whatever you say anyway, but somehow it pays special attention to what you say here, but this is, is why it's here, so Icarus can knock everybody out of the way, jump into the dais, and yell, hey, listen, god, whatever happens, death to the Eternals, which is what he zapped into the wall at the end of the previous issue, and this is really his his new thing. He thinks, we're Eternals, we, we suck, we're the worst, we're a bad idea, a failed experiment, or maybe maybe we were an okay experiment, but the experiment is over. We've done what we needed to do. Uh, now we're just causing ourselves and other people misery. So end us, is what he says. So what do you think of that? It's pretty dramatic, 
But it seems to be similar to what Fastus was doing at the beginning of the Gillen run, right? He was trying to eliminate all the Eternals because of the realization that, you know, their hmm. resurrections come at the cost of human life. Well, he was he was trying to turn off the the resurrection, I guess, right? So that would eventually be death to the Eternals. I think Icarus wants something a little more immediate even. He just wants to be wiped He's out. Wipe us out, yeah. Which makes me think of did you read I don't think many people read it, but a few years ago, Donnie Cates uh wrote the is it the Death of the Inhumans? I think that was the name of the miniseries. I did not read it, but where it was basically, hey, these inhumans have been hanging around for a while. We tried to make them the new you know, better version of the X-Men when we didn't have the rights to the X-Men in the movies. Nobody liked it. The, the, the TV show slash movie failed. Let's just have a big event to kind of maybe not really get rid of all of them, but knock them off the board for a while, right? We have not seen many Inhumans other than Ms. Marvel, who they keep trying to maybe pretend isn't an Inhuman for a while. And maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe uh, Marvel wants the Eternals to just kind of go away for a while, which, you know, they've done several times in their history. They're only, they pop in for a while and they go away. So maybe that'll be one of the main outcomes here is that if the Eternals aren't actually dead, because of course they're never going to be actually really, really dead because it's comic books, but maybe they'll be off the board. Is that what you think? Yeah. Or at least there'll just be a handful of them. I mean, a hundred is a lot of characters to care about, right? And people, I don't think we have like, well, we have the names, right? But even, even I have not if you ask me to list the names and like a, a thumbnail sketch of all the Eternals I can come up with, I could probably do a dozen, maybe maybe 20 if you give me really, really sketchy, you know, good good judging there. And that counts six hex, which you just say, they're really big and mean. Yeah, maybe they'll just get rid of the resurrection ability for them or something like that. I mean, I, I feel like there's going to be a big status quo after this. It'll be impacting the Eternals more than the other characters. And one, would, one would think. Maybe that'll lead to some new stories. Icarus that- has, has said, hey, God, get rid of us. And God answers. Uh, he says, hmm. It's kind of funny for God to say, hmm, but hmm, I will consider it. And so the progenitor appears, you know, looking kind of different. I guess seems to appear to all four of these people together. Sometimes only in your mind, sometimes all four, sometimes a big nasty thing we'll talk about later, but they all see him. And so we get a question. He asks them, so hey, I, you people here, you tried to kill me, you know, no, maybe not, maybe not holding a grudge about that, but would you do that or, or you, you made me? Would you do that again? And Fastos is the first to say, yeah, I, I wouldn't have done that. I thought it was a good idea at the time. Turns out, oops, we were wrong. Uh, Makari says, uh, nope, uh, yeah, I, I, we should have had more time to prepare. If we, had, if we had a little more time to think about it, make it work, it would have been good. But no, actually, I wouldn't have done it. And uh, is this Ajax next? Ajax says, yes, she is like the most devout, traditionally devout of all these Eternals. And she's devout and loyal even to the god that she herself made. It was kind of her idea. But she says, yeah, well, you know, if you're flawed, well, you know, some god is better than no god. And we get a ruling. Fastos passes. Thumbs up for Fastos. Uh, Makari fails. And Ajak gets deferred. I have to come back to her. And also, Icarus, you also get deferred. We're not going to give you a judgment yet either. So Fastos actually asks, and you know, I've been asking this over and over again, you know, where do these verdicts come from? He asks, why do I pass while Makari fails? And the progenitor says, Makari regrets, but does not do anything to try to correct her mistake. Whereas you, Fastos, you realize you made a mistake and you tried to fix it, you know, by, by trying to kill me. Uh, and yeah, so uh, 
Ajax is upset about this. She, I guess she didn't know that uh, Fastos was in on it. And so they start to fight because it's a comic book. And then this is another really cool bit. This is another part why this is my favorite of the books this week. Fa- or the progenitor turns kind of towards us, but not really addressing us. Who is the progenitor addressing now? Uh, the machine. The machine itself. The machine that is Earth. Our narrator. Who Our narrator says stuff to us, but hasn't been spoken to by the characters, except, you know, when they say, hey, machine, open up a vent, machine, do this, but not really spoken to like a person. But the progenitor says, hey, do not think I am not aware of you, machine that is Earth. You watch and cover your hot, bitter core with a cold, distant mantle of a smirk. You pretend to help and never help at all. Do not think you will escape judgment. And what does the machine say in response to this? <laughs> it's just surprised. It just says, oh. Like, uh, like, oh, you, you, you're talking to me? Like, what? looks, looks around. Me, me, me? Who? Me? Oh, yeah. So, yes, the, the machine that is Earth is also going to get judged. Again, not yet, but even knowing that that's on the list is kind of cool. I don't know if Gillen's going to make it work in the final analysis, but it's a cool concept. It's a cool concept, and it shows the progenitor as very omnipotent, which I felt like the X-Men story made him feel very small, right? So this was a good moment to go the other direction to to portray him as the way um, I would prefer to characterize the Celestials. Okay, now to almost wrap things up, we do another one of those. Let's revisit a scene we already know the outcome to, but in some more detail. So here we see what Cersei's up to, and what she's doing is she's hiring Jack of Knives to help her break uh, Star Fox slash Eros out of the exclusion. And so we see the he, he thinks that he needs to still drive a hard bargain because he thinks, well, maybe I'm going to be judged on if I'm living up to my own creed. So even though, yeah, I don't want the world to end either because it's where I keep all my stuff, that I still need to charge you for this because I have to show the progenitor I'm still doing my thing. Okay. And of course, he has a special blade that opens up, yada, yada, yada. They go rescue Star Fox, who in here looks even kind of grosser than usual. He looks very... <laughs> I don't know, gone to seed, very, very unwholesome, I would say. Like, stay, stay away from my kids, whoever you are. Like a Marilyn Manson kind of look going. Yeah, but like Marilyn Manson always looked like he was trying to look that way. Eros looks like it comes very natural to him. Like he, he is, to the core, just kind of gross. But before he's willing to leave the exclusion, he wants to make another visit. He wants to visit mom, Susan. And we get reminded that he was the only Eternal who was ever added to the machine, right? Because Susan and her husband, Tua, who wanted to have create actual Eternal offspring, and they used those uh, magic magic bands to do that. And so Mentor, somehow Eros got added to the machine, and he resurrects. That's, how, that's why he's here, because he died, and he showed up in the exclusion, and they said, yeah, we'd better, we'd better hang on to him for a while. And so he goes to visit Susan, and the only reason he goes to visit Susan is so we can hear about her judgment, right? That's that's it. And again, it says, oh, it came, it declined to judge me. Even though I'm Thanos' mom, and I've always thought that this makes me like the most damned person, damned creature ever, because, you know, I'm Thanos' mother, the, the you know, the person who killed half the universe. Even so, she's still only undecided. Which is yeah, weird. And they had that cool scene in one of the earlier Eternals stories where she was locked in a cage and like a little pixel would appear every time Thanos killed somebody. Was that her or was that the dad? I thought that was her. I, I thought that was maybe the dad. That was in one of the 
during the Gillen run, but it was in one of those extra issues that wasn't part of the regular numbering, I think. Well, in any event, I'm sure both parents are are uh, regretting. <laughs> yeah, and, and plus, <laughs> Thanos killed them both over and over again, too. Yes. So they've, they they know their, their, their parenting skills were not up to snuff. Now we get finally the actual last scene. It's bookended by going back to Sally, right? We saw Sally at the beginning talking about, oh, I got to start my zine. I got chatting with my new friend, the Mimator. And we see Sally's judgment. Sally gets judged by a vision of her grandmother. And I say her grandmother is always very encouraging. I guess, I'm not sure if her grandmother's still around in the real, you know, real life, but grandmother here gives her the thumbs down, which that's got to hurt. Oh, man. She's procrastinating and never started her zine. Yes, we're told that's why she got the thumbs down was because she didn't do the zine. She procrastinated. And she's she needs some encouragement, and and who does she get her encouragement from? <laughs> the Mimotar. The Mimotar, her, her online pal. Write some poetry for her. <laughs> says, oh, still, you can still do it. Start up your zine. I'll write some poetry. I would love to read the the Mimotar's poetry. In fact, yes. And uh, so Sally asks her friend the Mimotar. So ha- have you been judged? And Mimotar says, ah, no, not yet. And yeah. Sally asks, do you think you'll get the thumbs down for not submitting enough poetry? And the Mimotar says, you know. Uh, I think I'm going to be judged for something else entirely. And as we turn the page, we see the Mimator just incinerating some mutants here. Are we supposed to be able to have any idea who these mutants are? I think we've got a Wolverine-type helmet. It could, could be Wolverine there on the right. Yeah. But the idea is that, yeah, the Mimator has some other things on her plate. Although, we don't really know because other people have been judged for what seem to be minor parts of their, you know, their, their background, their portfolio. Yeah. So maybe it will be the poetry thing that that tips the balance. It will be if that's what it's if that's what its true central tenet and purpose is, then it's not pursuing its passion and it's going to get a big thumbs down. Maybe so. That is our first book. There's some interesting moments. Some some things you know. The more a book makes me think about things and want to talk about, well, what does that really mean? That's that's kind of what I'm looking for in X Men books. So yeah. I got I got to give it some points for that. But really, it just kind of feels stalled. Right? Our, our story is not moving forward. We're kind of exploring old scenes. We're kind of doing some little philosophical noodling. But uh, yeah, no real momentum. And again, to me, the adju- the judgments still feel kind of arbitrary. Do you have any overall reaction to this book? I like it um, a little more than that. I, I enjoyed the judgments in, in the Gillen stories. I feel like at least they're hinting at something that we're supposed to understand, or at least I can construct an explanation around what I'm seeing. And I and I do enjoy seeing that it's bigger than just the superheroes that everybody is actually getting judged. But at the end of the day, you know, if I were cost conscious, I wouldn't tell people to pick this up that it's necessary to understand what's going on in the story. Mm-hmm. It may be important for the Eternals going forward. So again, if you're an Eternals fan, like all seven of us in the continental US, you know, you'll this is the book that continues that story you were reading in in Gillen's Eternals. I'm not paging Jim telling him that he needs to read Death to the Mutants. <laughs> this would not be the book to get him back on board with the X-Men. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> nor nor in fact is our next book, which is uh uh Immortal X-Men number six, also written by Kieran Gillen. This one art is by Wernick. What's Wernick's first name? Oh, I can't even find the page. I hate it when the credits are this Lucas Wernick. I'm sounding like Jim here, complaining about the credits not being early enough in the book. And here on the cover, every issue of Immortal is has been, a, you know, talking about and from the point of view of one of our Quiet Council members, right? So here we have Sebastian Shaw dressed up in his typical kind of Victorian Edwardian dandy kind of outfit, 
and he's doing an actual spell that really does happen in the book. So it's always nice, I find, when the book or the cover illustrates an event that happens in the book. So that's that's a bonus. And as we open, we're going to get to Sebastian Shaw. It's going to be his his issue, but because we're in the middle of an event, we got we have some other housekeeping to do first. So you may have heard me say this before, but we revisit a scene where we already know the outcome. And this time, it's uh, about Sinister having a little conversation with Destiny over the telepathy, saying, hey, I heard there's this little weak spot, and you should get the Quiet Council to send X-Men to exploit this weak spot. And she's on the case, and she... Interesting thing here, I think, is the data page. What do you think of this data page? I thought it was fun. Um, I, I do like the political machinations that Immortal always gives to us, and this, I guess, shows some of the calculuses that you know the characters are running in their head as to like how the influence votes. Yes, so Destiny wants a yes vote. So she knows she can either play up how, you know, he might explode and kill everybody, or he, she can kind of soft pedal the whole maybe explode and kill everybody thing. And hey, maybe I can do this during one of the times when Xavier is dead. He seems to be dying like like uh, Kenny on South Park. He yep. dies, he comes back, he dies and comes back. So if I can time things so it's one of those many, many times when he's ending up dead, yep. then that's when it turns out to go her way. And she has, it looks like a spreadsheet. Right? Yep. I always imagine Destiny's future seer prophecy powers is almost like, you know, threads in a loom, very symbolic and mystical and tangled. But yeah. no, it, it seems that it's just a spreadsheet. It's just Excel. And she has percentages for things going her way in any of these cases. And she calculates, she pushes the F9 key and recalculates that, oh, if I minimize the odds of the explosion and I do it when Xavier is dead, I'm probably going to get my way. Yep. And there's yeah, some- I guess, I guess she like looks into the future- you know, in, in each of these options, and then counts the number of times. I guess so. Pretty, yeah, the, the pretty idea much that less it's a romantic. Is really bizarre, but I, I just do. I do like the idea that you know she's she's doing a calculus and kind of mm. determining you know which which you know possible future pushes it more towards the outcome she wants. I do like that she put in her spreadsheet like the most important number of all that the chance of celestial explosion. She said, "Yeah, fifty percent." which is obviously a clearly made up, pulled out of a rear end number, because how can she know that? And I've made spreadsheets like that, so I can I can identify where well, you, you put an arbitrary number up top that controls everything, and then you calculate everything else down to like eight decimal places. So <laughs> that's what she did. The yep. only bit here, and this is one of the like, don't think too hard about it, Ruben moments, um, and it starts <laughs> making me upset when I do think about it. That's why we're here. Um, this idea of Storm and her being absent, like, when does that take place? Because she was on Araco and then she left right before Uranus' sure. attack. And then Uranus destroys all the gates. But then they're saying she's absent. So she what went back? And then did she come back again? Because later I we see know. her we see her back in the council, right? So she like so somehow they got the gates up and running again so that she could return to, to Araco, but then the vote happens, and then at the end, we see her back kind of it in the debris. Is, it is unclear. Here. It would be nice to get a data page at some point with just, here's the timeline of everything. Or even yeah. like if, if Kieran Gillen shared, you know, he must have a wall covered in post-it notes or, you know, or, you know, red strings connecting things, a conspiracy wall of some kind. Yeah. You know, it would be nice. We're never going to get that explanation, but it would be nice to at least think that maybe it exists. Poor Storm, she's just like running back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really is. Do we want her in the scene? Yes. Oh, then she's here. Yeah. No. Oh, well, she's back on Mars. 
Whatever is convenient. Yeah. So after, then we get the recap of, oh yeah, they they did the attack, they thought they blew it up, but then the whole thing exploded and blew up maybe the whole world, maybe just Reykjavik, maybe just Iceland, but it doesn't matter because it didn't really happen. It was just a vision sent out to everybody in the world. And at this point, this is when Irene, Destiny, receives her judgment. So Ruben, tell us about her judgment. Yeah, so she's got Mystique here looking at her and basically saying... Thumbs down. You're getting judged because you're you're not really controlling your own destiny. You're sort of a creature of it. As much as you think you're the mastermind, right? Controlling things, you're you're kind of being controlled. Again, it's a very much a recency thing. And she says she's judging you for lying about your gift, judging for your fear of losing her, meaning mystique. Yep. Presumably. Yep. And so there's been a thing going back and forth with Destiny saying there's no such thing as Destiny. There's only probability. There's only chances. But this is the progenitor saying, you know that's not true. You know you're lying about that. And yeah. it's it's one of those things anytime in fiction when you create a character that can see the future, you always have to ask, okay, writer, which way are you going to play this? Is the future fixed? Is the future malleable? Is it like uh, Cassandra in the Iliad where she can see the future, but She's cursed to not be able to control it. Yep. How does it all work? And and it seems they're kind of trying to have it both ways here, maybe, where, yeah, so she's she's being judged for lying about how her powers work. Well, she lied to the council about the probability of the success of attacking the progenitor. Yep, that, that then, too, and also about the whole, I think it really is the whole destiny thing here. Yep. We are told that this island will burn and the whole world with it, if... If the peer, if there's enough people to get the thumbs down. So I guess it's one of those tipping point things. If there's more goats than sheep, the whole world's going to get. And interestingly here, I was, um, you know, it is Mystique judging her. But later we see when they're asking her to, when the council asks her, well, like, what was your judgment? She lies again and says it was her mother. She does. And what's interesting, I think, is that uh, several times we see people lying or, you know, kind of shading the truth about how their judgment went down, who they saw, what it was like. But we don't see anybody lying about the judgment itself. Nobody says, no, I, I got two big thumbs up. I got Siskel and I got Eber when they got <laughs> thumbs down. They, everyone is giving the truth as to their verdict. Events over, we got triple thumbs up. I don't know. <laughs> but for some, for some reason, they only lie about the bits around it. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. So we, we go back to the Quiet Council, and now is when the actual Sebastian Shaw part of the book picks up. We had kind of nine pages of, of preamble there. And we get to see some of his narration and what he's thinking as they talk on the council. And yeah, they're talking about you know who's been judged so far. So Emma says, yeah, I was judged. I got the thumbs down. She plays it off as like, oh, I'm not too concerned about it. Very, very Emma Frost. Very, oh, well, moving yeah. on. And she says, oh, who, who, was, who judged you? Oh, no one in particular. Yeah. And we see her judgment and it was a whole group. And I think, are these kids whose death she was responsible for? Is that what this collectively is? That's what I assume. I mean, I, I don't know enough of Emma's backstory when she kind of turned a new leaf. All I know is that she's always been about doing what's best for the kids. At least yeah, she was head, head headmistress of the school at some point. I think one of these is a Negasonic Teenage Warhead, maybe. And basically, I, th- I think it's... It's people it who like she empath. feels like she's responsible for their deaths. Yeah. I see an empath body kind of above her head. Mm-hmm. I, I don't recognize all these characters, but in any event, yeah, it looks like the people judging her are the children she thought she was trying to help. Yes. And in her judgment, she seems quite distraught by seeing this. But when she recounts it to the Quiet Council, very, you know, very matter of fact, very oh well. And then we see, and this, 
I don't know what's going on here. We see Kitty Pride, call me Kate, and she says, oh, I passed. I don't even know why. This was a celestial. That was done in one panel. What? Yeah. What is the purpose of that panel? <laughs> it's it's like it's it's like looking at me specifically and saying yes. This is all arbitrary. Is what I got out of that. I found it very maybe, frustrating. Maybe she's a liar. She hasn't been judged, and she's just trying to. <laughs> maybe that would at least be interesting. But it's a very glamorous panel of of her looking at us and saying, "Yeah, yeah. I got I got a thumbs up," and no other details, no other drama. And then we get a very cranky Professor Xavier. I mean, granted, he's probably died seven times already today in psychic yeah. combat. And he's cranky because he's saying, you know, I, even right now, as I'm talking with you, I'm fighting like 17 psychic eternals in my head. So, yes. you know, maybe I've been judged. Maybe I haven't. I'm too busy to even notice. He just yeah. wants to, I, he wants, he wants everyone to know just how hard he's working. I go, okay, professor, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, we get some more mutants saying, yeah, I haven't been judged yet. Not me. And even Exodus says, yeah, I'm, I haven't been judged yet either. Yeah. Uh, we get. I'm going to skip this flashback for Shaw for a second, but when we come back from that flashback, we have Exodus's judgment happen. And yeah. this is yet another completely new twist on how judgments happen, because we have a peer right here in front of the, the Quiet Council. It seems to be a physical appearance, not just yeah. a psychic apparition. We see a demon from hell, and we see the old Black Knight, uh, Eobard Garrington, who crazy. Chris and I talked about this character back when we discussed issue five of Immortal X-Men, which was the Exodus-centric book, because we talked about this old uh, miniseries, what was it called? Black Knight Exodus. And this is before Exodus you know, emerged as immune, before he got his powers. He was hanging out during the Crusades with uh, this Black Knight. And this Black Knight is saying, hey, Bennett, Exodus, I'm stuck here in hell now because I gave my life to help you back in the 12th century, which turned out to send me to hell. Oops. But if you take my place, I can go free. And this is the progenitor doing a thing to test Exodus, I guess. Yes. yes. And we get a panel that's very on the nose, supposed to look like uh, the creation on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. We always get that kind of look. And Exodus says, you know, nope, I, I can't do that. You're the best. Eobard, you're fantastic, but I can't sacrifice myself because I still have stuff to do here. Uh, and that seems to be the right answer, but the beast is still tempting him. I guess he passed so far, but the temptation's not done. But we need this to we need to, this to end. So who who rushes in to be the hero to make this this uh, this test finish for real? Yeah, so Sebastian, I guess, tosses his favorite suit so it doesn't get burned, and then he walks into the fire and throws a big punch. <laughs> he beats Exodus unconscious. Because unconscious people can't be tempted. Yes. I really think that's what happened. And then in the narration, which is coming from Shaw, it says, the beast fades away, the test over, a raised thumb. It seems Exodus passed. Now, in the art, I see no raised thumb. Yeah, I don't So understand. I guess we have to take Shaw's word for this. He wouldn't, you know, it's like a, like a Shakespeare soliloquy. We have to assume he's not lying to us in the narration boxes. So I, I guess that it, was happened. Yeah, I found it just bizarre that this is the first time we see other people inside somebody else's judgment. That part really throws me off. I Very mean, the weird. Whole, the whole scene is cool, right? The whole like stripped down and, you know, he's, you know, his power basically gets stronger as he gets attacked, right? And so yeah, it's an energy absorption thing where he absorbs the attacking energy and turns it back out into his own attacking energy, which is a good reminder. We haven't seen that him use that very much in any of the Krakona era. He's just seen as your... You're scheming, plotting businessman. That's all visually cool, but 
but logically just bizarre. I have I start to stretch and try to understand mm-hmm. how did this happen, right? Right. So in his flashback, which kind of bridges the scene, we see he had he had a rough childhood. No uh, no surprises there. He's a Marvel villain. They all had bad childhoods. And his dad also liked to dress up all fancy. And he also liked the money. And he says, hey, kid, you bother me. You're not even worth a million dollars. So when the dad dies, young or like, you know, younger Shaw comes back with his first, his first million dollars. <laughs> he got his MBA, yeah. Comes back with his first million in a suitcase, dumps it all over his father's grave and sets it on fire saying, yep. hey, I'm going to make more than this anyway. So let me show you that million dollars you wanted. And oh, by the way, I know some cultures, you know, they make sacrifices to improve the lot of their ancestors in the afterlife. No, no, no. I want, if, if this is worth anything, if any God's listening, I want you to use this to make my dad even worse. Yep. So that's, uh, it's, I guess it's kind of a badass scene, but you know, I don't know that it really tells me anything about Shaw's character. He holds a grudge. I mean, I guess that tells you that. And I, maybe I think we kind of knew that. I think we kind of knew that from the time he, uh, you know, <laughs> murdered Kitty Pride and all those other things. But so, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a reminder that he's probably still got a big vendetta about, you know, Emma kind of usurping most of the real control over the Hellfire mm-hmm. organization and that he's still, you know, got machinations to kind of get, get back. And throughout, we get these kind of thought bubbles, which are his, where he's kind of, you know, kind of annoyed that pretty much everyone is looking to Emma and Storm as sort of the two you know, people that are going to lead the council. That's true. He he is vain in the sense that he wants to be seen as important. He wants to see, be seen as controlling everything behind the scenes. And he doesn't like it when other people have that, uh, have that aura about them. Yep. So after the big test of Exodus... We see Shaw alone by himself again, getting dressed in a new suit because his old one got all, all burned up. And he gets an opportunity to make an investment. He gets the opportunity to invest in an Orcus-based startup. So Orcus is, of course, the human corporation slash organization devoted to trying to kill all mutants. Yep. And he says, oh, I can make some money by investing in their their weaponry? Sure, yep. go ahead and do that. And yep. he reminds us that he did the same thing back in the day, investing in Sentinels. Yep. And we're told that he doesn't regret this at all. He only regrets that he didn't do it earlier so he could make more money. And this may be real. This may be part of another, oh, sneaky progenitor test, because as soon as he does that, we see the red bubble of the progenitor, the god, show up to judge Sebastian. And he's he's sure that it's going to appear as his dad. But he turns around, and who does it look like to him? Emma. Emma. And that just pisses him off to no end. It, all it says, Emma, you know, Emma Progenitor says, you are judged, thumbs down. And then he just gives her the what for. How dare you judge me? You think Emma Frost. You think I care about you. I am who I am. I live up to, up to or maybe down to my own lack of ideals, blah, blah, blah. You dare judge me. So I found this interesting. I mean, it's basically saying, you know, he doesn't really believe that she is, you know, better than just power hungry, money grubbing person that she used to be. Mm-hmm. And maybe that he feels... But this is where I don't... I start to not buy your theory about people living up to their own potential, because Shaw is living up to his potential. He's being the shyest Shaw he could ever be, and yet he gets the thumbs down. Can you... You have a theory for why he gets that? Unless secretly in his heart, he actually doesn't want to be bad guy still, but he just behaves that way. That that seems unsatisfying to me that, oh, Shaw is se- secretly in his heart just a, a, a scared little kid. I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> so Shaw has managed to have the council appoint him as representative to go and negotiate with the faction of Eternals who don't want to kill them all. So, you know, 
maybe not their friends, but at least they're, you know, again, they're enemies, enemies. And he, they do this at the Hellfire Club in New York. And we see outside the Hellfire Club, it seems that maybe this whole judgment thing has made humans go crazy. Again, not consistent book to book, scene to scene, but at least here, we see there's like the city's on fire, there's riots, it's awful outside the gates. Inside, he is sitting around a fire, drinking some probably whiskey, not sure what else it would be, with Eros, Star Fox. And they've come to some kind of an understanding. Do you know, can you interpret what kind of an understanding they've come to? It seems like he's saying something like, the Eternals will back off if the Krakoans give up some of their immortality. At least that's what he wants, right? He's saying like, the fact that you're immor- immortal is how we tagged you as being excess deviants. So if you give up on that in some way, then we won't attack anymore. We can put this all behind us. That seems to be sort of what he's talking about, but how does how does he have any authority here, right? Yeah, he, very, Druig sure. is the one controlling all the armories, controlling the attack. He's the, yeah. the head of the Eternals. And Druig is not going to listen to what Star Fox has to say. Unless right? he Star Fox care less. has a plan to be... Maybe maybe he has a strategy to become the Prime Eternal. Because it is just a vote, right? You can change the, the Prime Eternal. Yeah, I guess you have to have a, a vote of no confidence in something. You have to elect a new Prime Eternal. It's kind of unclear, but something's going on there. And we do see that Angel is hanging out because uh, Angel is kind of keeping an eye on Shaw, making sure he doesn't sell out uh, his fellow mutants for his own profit. And at least in this case, we're supposed to think, oh, Shaw could have pressed for his own profit, but in this case, he's actually doing what's best for Krakoa and for the children, the young well, the young he mutants. Think, he thinks about Emma, right? And like, what would she do? And he changes his tune. Well, and he he thinks else. about, it says, I think of Frost's eyes cracked with cosmic fire, that upturned nose, and that downturned thumb. So not Emma exactly, but the progenitor as Emma. So those two kind of things mixed together in his brain. And for some reason, that makes him want to do the right thing, I guess? I don't know. I, again, not very clear to me. But we get, we get one more scene with Shaw. He goes down to the basement of the Hellfire Club. He has another meeting he's got to go to. And to make this meeting happen, he has to use some blood and make a pentagram and squeeze a human heart and light some black candles. And he, this is someone he's meeting with. And this does seem to be very much only about his own financial interest. And uh, this is a character you seem to have quite an affinity for. So why don't you tell us who this is? <laughs> yeah, just because in the Slack I was saying I thought the character's name was cool. Um, yeah, More than so I've got for yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, this is a character called Mother Righteous that, um, oh my gosh, what's his name? Size Superior, I guess, created in, in Legion. Yep, Legion I, of X she's in. Yep. And all we've seen is that she's sort of a deal maker. Some sort of, you know, offering you the world, right? But we don't really know what she wants in exchange for it kind of thing. and. It's suggested in this scene that the reason Selene was able to uh, convert the external gate into those kaiju that were attacking Rakoa when she was trying to get onto the council was that she was powered up through some deal with this Mother Righteous character. Yeah, so maybe Shaw thinks he's going to get some sort of power up to do we don't know yet. That's where this book leaves off. So again, a, a really mixed bag of an issue, had some cool things, but... I really wish it, it it felt more cohesive, felt like it was sticking together more. Again, it, it's very I keep forgetting that all these that these both these books so far are written by the same author who's running the main event title because they feel like they all have a different point of view, a different idea of what's really happening, which I don't think should happen if it's all the same person, but maybe maybe there's a secret plan back there that I'm just not seeing yet. Maybe a 
maybe next time we see a main issue, it'll all come to me in my head and I'll say, okay, Kieran Gillen, you're a genius. You had this planned all out along and it makes perfect sense. Yeah, my sense I doubt it, immortal, but it's possible. Yeah. Um, immortal feels like maybe he just hamstrung by the the mission statement, which is like every issue I'm going to write a story from the perspective of one of the council members. And perhaps he, he didn't exactly know what to do with how do you fit the Sebastian perspective in along with this event. But I, I agree with you. It's a little less less clear. I mean, and when he started Immortal, he knew what was coming. So it's not like he could be taken by surprise here. Oh, and it's, yeah, it's his own event, right? So I can't... No one to blame but himself. Excuse him for what he's done. Yeah, but I think that might be what going on, why it's a little less cohesive. Okay, so that is our second of our two, what I'm calling the consequential books of this week. Got two more to talk about, and we'll do these next two pretty quick because at least I don't have very much to say about it. Uh, the next one we're going to talk about is Wolverine number 24, called Hell to Pay, written by Ben Percy, art by Federico Vicentini. And so we start off with something very, we do get the Judgment Day trade dress on the cover, and we start off with something pretty relevant. We see Wolverine, again, he doesn't really get judged, but he gets the progenitor appear to him as a judge. So first, it appears in the form of Moira, and then Omega Red, and then Omega Wolverine from X-Deaths of Wolverine. That was crazy. Then we see him show up as as Dokken slash Dakin, Sabretooth, Jean Grey. I guess everybody here that Wolverine has ever killed, which that seems so cliche for Wolverine. Oh, he's always brooding about all these all these people I've killed, all these bad things I've done. So to see that happen again, it's like, okay, Ben Percy, we, we get it. He's, he's guilty Wolverine. And he doesn't even get judged. He gets he gets another twenty four hours, and then they're going to judge him. Then okay, anything ex- anything exciting about this scene, as far as you can tell? No, <laughs> no. It's it's a fine excuse to uh, have Vicentini draw a whole bunch of characters with a little bit of progenitor in them. But he does it differently here. In the other books, in the Gillen books, often it's like one they have one red glowing eye, like one kind of circular misshapen eye, and that kind of stands in for the progenitor. And in this one, they have your very basic, you know, just just red eyes. Not very consistent. So the rest of this is calling back to, oh my gosh, it's calling back to X of Swords, for God's sake. It's calling back to this story where one of the swords they had to get (laughs) that turned out to be completely useless, where (laughs) he had to get the pair of Muramasa blades, and he met up with Solemn, this Iraqi mutant who has skin made of vibranium, not vibranium, the other one, Admantium. Anyway, they, they, they had to go down to hell, and they killed a, the groom, and they stole the blades that were the wedding presents of the hell bride, who is the son of, the daughter of, daughter of the beast, which is kind of interesting because the Punisher right now is all about the beast. It doesn't feel like it's the same beast, but I guess it must be, right? Two people identifying themselves as the beast. <laughs> it's I mean, how many beasts of hell can I don't don't answer that question. So we've got the hell bride here down in hell tells her daddy, who is the beast, that for some reason this is the moment she wants to take revenge. I don't know how many issues ago X of Tens happened, but it was a long damn time ago. But for some reason this is the moment. Maybe they say, Hey, all the other stuff's going on, maybe the world's gonna end. I'm gonna run out of time. I better do this quick. Uh and so she has, she's gonna go and take revenge on Wolverine and Solemn and to get the blades back. So we see Solemn's hanging out in San Francisco. And here in San Francisco, we see gunshots and fire and cars exploding and helicopters on fire crashing, which I gather is 
pretty much your basic Tuesday in San Francisco these days. Is that <laughs> is that more or less? That's what I get from the news anyway. But yeah, so S- San Francisco is going to hell, and Solomon's got himself an orgy. He's got literally wine, women, and song. That seems pretty basic. That's what he's into. Oh, but and that, it's, it's yeah, he's going both ways here, not just the women. That's true. Well, at least uh, the ones close to him right now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's he's into pleasures of the flesh and some really gross-looking grapes. Uh, but his party is crashed by the Hell Bride. Uh, he disappears. He's gone. But there, in the same place. She's killed all his, uh, his, his friends there, and her father shows up, except it's not her father. Who is it, Ruben? Who could possibly be appearing to her in the guise of her father? Yeah, progenitor. It's the progenitor. And it's a f- so the progenitor is now judging this demonic hell bride, which I got to tell you, I'm surprised he's got jurisdiction here, right? I would think some sort of sovereign immunity. She's not really from Earth. Anyway, whoever he wants to judge, I, I guess so. He's he's you know gods in the Marvel universe are kind of confusing thing, but he claims to judge her, and she doesn't she doesn't make an argument that no, I'm immune. She says, okay, I'll do that. It's fine by me. But she again is given a deferred judgment, and she has until the end of the day. So I don't know if she and Wolverine are going to be judged at the same time. If it's a joint thing, who knows? We pop off to Summer House on the Moon, which looks fantastic. After being smushed back together by the Watcher over in Fantastic Four, I gotta say, everything back in its proper place. Wolverine comes here because this is where he stored those Muramasa blades, and uh, that's what he's gone for. And he gets attacked by Solemn. They fight, fight, fight. Then they say, hey, we've got to team up. And the agreement is that Solemn is going to help Wolverine attack the Progenitor, because that worked out so well last time. And Wolverine's going to help Solemn kill the Hellbride so that she doesn't kill him. So that's their deal. As soon as <clears throat> as soon as they leave, who pops up in the summer house? Uh, the Hellbride. It is the Hellbride again. I, it's, I guess we can't tell passage of time panel to panel, but it seems like the two of them beam out, and she beams right in with all her minions. And she can smell they've been there. She was just coming here for the Muramasa Blades. She missed them by like 12 seconds. They've been here for months, maybe years, but she just missed them. and. At this point, she looks down at Earth, because she's on the moon, and she says, there's been a change in plan. What What is going on here, Ruben? Because I, I honestly have no idea what she means by that. <laughs> uh, you don't know either? I don't even know if I care, honestly. Okay, I, I, I know the answer to that question, but uh, <laughs> we now turn, and here, the, the, we get this last little scene, and it's kind of crazy, but kind of fun. I, I, I'm going to say this last scene that makes the issue more fun than it otherwise was. We see the progenitor hanging out of the North Pole. This is him, like, physically. He's probably mentally all over the world at this moment, but physically, he's still at the North Pole. He's kind of looking up into the sky. He sees the aurora, and he has, I don't know, some sort of a crystal ball he pulled out of the sky, and he sees Wolverine and Solemn coming for him, and he sees the Hellbride riding some sort of demonic sled also towards him. And he says, what, what are you doing? How foolish. Did you think I wasn't going to see you coming? So you come seeking judgment, judgment you will find. So what does this all-seeing, all-knowing god of a progenitor do to meet these people coming to meet him? What does he do, Ruben? Tell he me. Makes a, he makes an ice golem. I don't know why he makes, he makes a, an ice golem, but he does. He makes a little mini-me out of himself, of himself out of ice. I don't, I don't know why. It's still, <laughs> still quite big because, you know, he's really huge. Even a mini version of himself is, is really impressive. Yeah. And he says, they have chosen the failed path. And says, go forth as my avatar, 
deliver my sentence. Yeah. So I don't know why, yet another way of delivering a judgment. And I don't know why Wolverine here didn't just talk to Cyclops. Because apparently there's a very easy way to get here and talk to him, but it looks like <laughs> he's like trudging through the yeah. snow. Wolverine doesn't do anything the easy way. He yeah. he feels so guilty about all those people he killed, Ruben. He's, he has to punish himself every it's minute like, of every day. Like, I swear there's got to be a gate that's like right there, right? Because we saw Cyclops just pop on out and say, I oh, yeah. forget about you, judge me. And then he yeah. left. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Wolverine is like, no, we're going to fly, you know, to the border of Antarctica and or not Antarctica, but, you know, the Arctic and hike. <laughs> so that's Wolverine. Some crazy, I guess some crazy fun stuff. If you just want to go, hey, that's crazy fun stuff. But it doesn't cool. really do much about Wolverine's story. It calls back to a story I didn't need called back to. But eh, it is it, it is what it is. It's kind of a story. Ben Percy wanted to get paid for putting Solomon in another book. <laughs> I guess he does want, he, he wants Solomon to catch on. He wants to get those royalties when we get a, a standalone Solemn movie or maybe a Solemn on Disney Plus show. I guess we probably couldn't do Solemn on Disney Plus. That's more of a kid's thing, huh? <laughs> That'll have to be on Hulu. Yes. So that's all I have to say about Wolverine. So, uh, yeah, I, I found this this issue to be pretty skippable. Very skippable. Uh, speaking of skippable, uh, Marauders number six, titled Even Odds of Destruction, written by everyone's favorite, Steve Orlando, uh, <laughs> art by Andrea Brocardo. So I've got to tell you, Ruben, I read this issue. I haven't been keeping up with Marauders. I barely know who these characters are. So maybe you can tell me what happened and if or why I should care. Uh, I'm not good enough to tell you why you should care. I don't have that uh, cleverness, but... Can you, can you sum up what the what the action of this issue was? Yeah, I'll keep it real simple. So basically, there's a character whose name I didn't bother to know, um, who's a psychologist, and she... That's Birdie, I think. Is that okay, Birdie? Birdie? Yep. So she goes and meets with all the, the marauders and talks to them like, oh, did you get judged? And they all say yes. And then she's like, let's have group therapy to talk about. Oh, not judgment. another group therapy book. Yeah. And so then we get like 28 pages of individual consultations. How did it make you feel getting judged? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess we're supposed to care. They all It's a very different looking book. So if, if you like different kinds of art, this one, I don't care for the style, but I've got to give it credit for being different. All the characters, even like, they all look much younger than they look in the other books. Even Bishop looks like he's on a CW show. They're all very, very much there. They look like they're wearing makeup and eyeliner and blush. And it's just very, very polished that way. Very kind of plastic. You're not my thing. So did anything happen in this issue like, that is consequential to no, the main story? No, nothing consequential happened. Okay. There was an interesting, I guess, discussion about, you know, the people that judged Bishop were some of his teammates from his future timeline. Okay. And they're, they're like, why didn't you resurrect us? And then he's like, I haven't made the world good enough for you to be here. But I was like, well, you haven't resurrected him because they were from the future. I don't think huh. they're, I don't think they're, uh, they're, they're not eligible yet. Right. Cerebro, right. So how would, would that work? Because we don't have to worry about the Cerebro backups anymore because of what is the place the Scarlet Witch created called again? Oh, doesn't matter. But that, that she created this magical repository of everybody. Yeah. So maybe and future people are the future. there. They're still in the future. I mean, did the magical repository get a copy of every single potential so that's a darn good question from you know time in motorium and then at the end i guess we see there's this character the judas traveler which sounds like a an early 80s metal band to me but he is now working with orcus which i think is new information yes okay so that's that's the I important know, thing to know about in the main about universe him or care about him yeah um, okay or if this is the first time you've seen him 
I'm not, I'm really not following this. And there seems to be a reference to, um, I don't even know what they're called, but I, I think I read on Wiki that the Marauders are trying to bring back some pre-pre-mutants that allegedly preceded the Iraqi okay. or lost to time. So, I, yeah. so listeners, we did not do a great job of telling you all about Marauders number six. I got to admit that. We're not following that one. So if, if you think our work there just did not do the book justice, if you think there's important things here that happened that we should know about or other people should know about, please let us know. Write in to, you know, at Weird Science, at WS Marvel, or any of the other places you can reach us because I would, I would love to be told why this book is something we should pay attention to or about anything else for that matter. Yeah. So I do have my little bonus item. You ready for that one, Ruben? Yeah, I'm curious. What is this? This is not an Axe Tyne book, not an X-Men book, but She-Hulk number six. Are you reading Rainbow Rowell's She-Hulk? I am not. So on the cover and in the book, we have Nightcrawler this week. Ooh. So she's working for this new law firm. The law firm doesn't want any creepy superhero mutant kind of characters. So she always gets in trouble when her crazy friends show up on the uh, in the office door. But Nightcrawler comes in and Nightcrawler signs up so that She-Hulk's law firm is now officially representing the nation of Krakoa in all legal matters. Oh, interesting. That, that seems like a big, kind of a big deal, right? Her, their relationship with the world, how they interact with the legal political system. Now, caveat, the whole continuity status of the book is kind of nebulous. It does certainly lead out of what happened to She-Hulk in the Avengers. And like Jack of Hearts showed up in She-Hulk. Jack of Hearts also showed up with She-Hulk in Fantastic Four. So there's some definite connections, but it's also a very different tone, very tenuous. So the odds of this actually ever being mentioned in an actual, you know, X book in one of the, you know, the official, you know, I, if there were a head of X, it would be one of his books or her books is, I don't know, I'd, I'd give it less than 50-50 odds. But I thought it was worth a mention because if it does, if it does actually happen, I want to be able to say, "Hey, listeners, I told you this earlier." First, yes, it kind of surprises me that there's not any mutant lawyers. But mutant lawyers, yeah, I, I can't think of any offhand. Good. They're not as good as She-Hulk. I was going to say Fabian Cortez, but I'm just saying that because he's kind of a jerk, and maybe that's my bias against lawyers. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go any further with that, uh, that down that road. But okay. So those are all the books this week. Anything you want to say, Ruben, to, to wrap things up that we haven't said already? No. I think we've been talking for quite a long time. So let's wrap this one up. Okay. So next week, we have some big books coming again next week. We have our main event title, uh, AXE Judgment Day number four. So often when we get these, these main event books, we kind of get kicked into a new mode, so which I think would be a good thing because I'm feeling... I'm feeling like we've got it. We got to go something different. I'm kind of bored where we are right now. So I don't know anything about what will be coming up with that. I don't look at the previews. I don't look at the solicits. So I'll be just as surprised as everybody else. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. I'm, I'm hoping it gives me what I want. We got to get past the character judgment like gimmick. Uh, I, I would like that, but I think we have a whole bunch more tie-ins come in. And I don't know what else we're going to do in the tie-ins. So I think we're probably going to see a lot more individual judgments. But <sighs> next week, we have X-Men Red number six, which remember last time we left off X-Men Red, we saw Magneto had somehow saved himself from having his heart ripped out. So I want to see what happens to that. That looks like it could be cool. And Maybe I've we'll, been, get a, we'll see a storm show up and then leave again. And that'll could help be. me. And really, I've been loving X-Men Red. Uh, Al Ewing hasn't always been my favorite writer, but I'm really enjoying X-Men Red, so I have high hopes for that. We have X-Force number 32, which, remember our cliffhanger last time there was Craven the Hunter, 
had Deadpool's head on a stick, and it was a scene out of uh, Children of the Atom where he's going to try to sneak through one of the gates to get to Krakoa and maybe try to hunt Beast and wear his, his fursuit. So that could be fun. And not officially an axe tie-in, but Amazing Spider-Man number nine, <clears throat> excuse me, is a Hellfire Gala tie-in because I guess that book's maybe delayed a little bit. So we will finally get to see what happened to Mary Jane back at the gala when Moira kidnapped her and how Spidey and Wolverine plan to get her back. Now, I'm sure we'll at least talk about that a little bit next week. I don't I don't know if Jim's going to talk about that with me on the main show, but we'll at least mention what happens because it, it connects to all our acts. That is all I have to say for today. So listeners, thank you for tuning in and, and hearing uh, what uh, Ruben and I had to say and sometimes not say about this week's AXE Judgment Day books. And we will see you again next time. Later.